That gets me every time. I love it. <laughs> Tonight, we welcome the men behind Henhouse Brewing, Scott Goyne, Shane Gopal, and Colin McDonald. Founded in 2011 and based in our hometown of Petaluma, Henhouse quickly became one of the most popular producers of craft beer in Sonoma County. The last few years has been a time of incredible growth and learning for these guys, and tonight we're very excited to learn more about the past, <laughs> present, and future of Henhouse Brewing. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks, man. Yeah, let's do a, like a voice identification here. Scott, welcome. Hello there. Shane, welcome. It's me. Colin, welcome. <laughs> Hello. Just for people who have no idea about the operation, there's no fourth person, fifth person. I mean, these are the guys. And nobody came along later. It started with you three. What do you guys each do? I mean, do you all do a little bit of everything? Or do you, have you kind of like divided the roles off now? We're growing to the point where we need to start dividing uh, roles off. Mostly, I uh, I sell the math, and then that kind of brings <laughs> in the money, and we, we use that to, to subsidize the, the nightclub. That's a very similar arrangement we have here, actually. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's true. No, um, I'm sorry. Uh, we so, can edit that out if you want. Yeah. <laughs> I know brand is very important for a growing you, company you, like you yours. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Paying tribute to Petaluma's meth-selling past yeah. is part of our brand. I think uh, we're you, proud of it. And, and you do make it very clear on all of your social media and your website that you love Petaluma. So it sounds like you love all aspects of Petaluma. <laughs> <laughs> From the brightest <laughs> to the darkest. So... We got started, I guess, uh, what, you guys started brewing together in like 2009? Uh, Yeah, 2008 or 2009, right, Scott? Yeah, something like that. Scott and Shane were brewing together, and they were brewing on uh, equipment that Scott had built. And it was a, well, Scott, do you want to? Yeah, good lord, talk about that equipment, because that shit is pimp. And I want to say something about that. I've heard you described by a mutual friend of ours as as like the mad scientist of the group. Uh, I suppose so, um... I used to build the machines that extract aroma and drive around the county with a trailer-mounted still, extracting uh, essential oils out of aromatic plants. And then I, um, I moved that operation into the facility that Shane worked at, and I, I consulted for them as well. And so I was operating an aroma business out of there, extracting aroma, lavender, dug fir, rose geranium. Which actually is, is a good business in its own right, I think, isn't it? People were really excited about the products, and I was selling everything I made, but it, that was the kind of thing where... Um, I just dove into it, and then I wrote the business plan. Tom, you know and, about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, write a business plan? <laughs> I also work on industrial processing equipment, so that was um, somewhat of a crap business after I wrote the business plan. But that's important because your background and all of like, the aroma extraction and your history and your occupations really laid the foundation for what you needed to have the infrastructure to do Hen House. Yeah, Hen House doesn't exist well, Scott, yeah. in, in any capacity. It's, it's, it's insane. My background's industrial processing equipment. I've been working on uh, rock quarries and various processing facilities and wineries all around the area for decades. And then when I became a hippie herbalist... I applied that to creating these machines that extract aroma. And then when I put that company to the wayside after writing the business plan and crying, um, (laughs) (laughs) Shane, uh, we were making kombucha at the facility and different stuff. And uh, Shane was like, let's start brewing beer. And it was like, oh, look at these carboys. And it was like, wait a second. No, let's use this steam and let's use this steam kettle and uh, let's use these sanitary pumps. And right out of the gate, we were brewing way more beer than we could consume. These men were beer rich. Absolutely. And we we still are. No other kind of rich. Oh, my God. But beer rich. So beer rich. One of the nice things was coming off of all this and Colin joined the scene and we're brewing delicious beer and hey, let's make a business. And, it was, and I was like, 
Well, let's start with a business plan. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's good, though. So, like, a lot of experiences you had helped Hen House maybe it, succeed where others might have failed. Yes. Colin came in from the uh, microbrewing or craft brewing industry. And so he had fresh knowledge from that industry. And uh, Shane with his production background and me with my um, equipment background. And we were all just uh, really into making high quality products. Uh, we really crunched the numbers and spent a lot of time writing a solid business plan. And then we played upon the opportunities that we had um, with the equipment. Really, really, really incredibly small breweries are generally re- referred to as nano breweries. And we started a nano brewery. A, you know, we we're making four kegs a week. Um, we started a nano brewery at the exact moment when everyone in the world wanted to start a nano brewery. The um, beer is is so much more than fizzy alcoholic water. You know, it's it's really like this very basic thing that brings people together. You know, you go out, and you have a beer with people. Like it's a thing that brings people together, and they talk over beers. And so for me, like I want as many small local breweries in this country as possible. You know, I'd like I want more places where we can kind of have like you know public houses. You know, like pubs in the real yeah. sense, uh, where people kind of congregate and commune with each other. But, you know, it sounds like uh, in Scott and Shane's case, you guys kind of started this as a labor of love almost. You were doing it for the love of beer, is that correct? Uh, to make your own beer, probably. When Scott and I started brewing together, it was very much hobby and home brewing, right? Yeah. And so, and I met Colin about the same time I met uh, my now wife, uh, Maura. They, the two of them grew up together. And she introduced me to Colin, and Colin had just started brewing beer as well. And so there is, and I, I believe it's the way, uh, I, I think this is mostly from Colin's perspective, but Colin, I was like, oh, come over and brew with us. And Colin came over to brew with us, and we're on like, I don't know, have you ever seen like homebrewers brew, but it's like on a propane burner and like uh, a little pot and like, you know, it's like outdoors and stuff. We were indoors with washdown rooms and floor drains and steam kettles and pumps and stuff. And Colin's like, "This is not home brewing, guys. <laughs> like, you are yeah. this 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 need you need to license this. This is a way to make money. Like, it was we were already brewing at a semi uh, commercial level, but as it is right now, right now we are all in. Like, yeah. you know, all three of us. This is this is this is our job. We are we are we work for Henhouse Brewing Company, and 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 this is our lives, and this is all we do. We've been putting in long hours for quite a number of years now, but it it became real once. Um, once we started spending copious amounts of other people's money, <laughs> Dude. then it was then it was like, oh, this is this is more real. Oh my this god, this is a lot more real. Yeah. So th- there has not been a more stressful time than now, but we're 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 doing well. Okay, so you said that you were a nano brewery, now you're a microbrewery, right? The industry group which represents small breweries is called the Brewers Association. They define a nano brewery as a brewery that makes less than five barrel batches. Uh, we were doing two barrel batches, so we constituted a nano brewery and they define a microbrewery as a brewery that brews less than 15,000 barrels a year. We uh we did a thousand barrels in 2014. So, we do technically fit into microbrewery now. Microbrewery is a term that is loaded with so much 90s nostalgia that I'm not sure we really fit it. Like we're not doing like a, a Dude, super bro. boring amber ale, so I don't think we count. Bro. Yeah, earlier I, met, I referred to you that you were in the microbrewing industry, and then I cut myself short because it was like an insult, and I was like, wait, so bro, no, dude, no, bro. Colin, you had kind of like a mini Twitter rant about being a craft brewery or not being a craft brewery, and I'm sure you guys all have an opinion on this. Craft brewing comes with a lot of baggage, right? I've always liked the terminology of independent breweries, right? We are we're small independent companies, and we sell our product locally, and we and we uh, fill our the local 
like the sort of local niche that that we need to fill and that that's the part that i like i think craft has turned into um I, we we joke about it all the time but it's like the it's like the scene in being john malkovich where it's like john malkovich malkovich it's like craft beer 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 but craft beer it, it it almost to me sometimes it just it doesn't mean anything it's just the useless jargon that's just that's honestly that's me it's a, you know I'm on the flip side of that lately. Like I, um, I, I, I was on that where you just kind of like, what, what even does craft mean? But what I've realized is that it means a lot to people who are really excited about beer. And like one of the things that like you talk to people who like you know people who manufacture soap, um, soap consumers are not crazy excited about soap. They're just not. You know, like shoe consumers are like kind of excited about like shoes, candy, but like yeah. compared to beer, like no one is excited about any other kind of manufacturing. People are really, really excited about beer and they've and they've latched on to this concept of craft beer. Right. And so like kind of like my feeling about like, you know, not wanting to use craft beer is that like we're basically being like, oh, that thing you're really excited about. Yeah, we're not really comfortable with that term. <laughs> You know, and like, I don't like, I, I think that like people, people who are so excited about what we're doing, we kind of owe it to them to make craft actually mean something, even if it like kind of starts off as this nebulous, useless statement. And it, because it means something to them, it means something, right? I mean, that's absolutely, it, it, may, it may be stupid to people who've been looking close up at independent brewing for a long time because, and it's just like, you know, in your bands, maybe, maybe your bands defied uh, genre classification. Oh, uh, we were uh, uh, self-important. Yeah, and uh, and not successful. So uh, I don't know if it's a, a model to follow. Yeah, but nobody likes the cla- you know classifications. They put up walls and they can kind of seem constricting. But at the end of the day, to the casual person who's going to buy your beer, they may be really excited about craft beer, and and you want to respect them for that. You know, absolutely. The craft beer market. Um, there are a lot of options, and and there are a lot of cheaters in, in the game in terms of the big companies creating their craft brands. Uh. I mean, we we are all for the local local brand, but like the craft brew, the way that it's become, that definition has become diluted is a lot like the organic brand when the FDA stepped in and and uh, they wrote the rules defining organic and the big businesses lobbied to, to dilute the meaning of organic. The same thing happens within the craft beer designation but still, as a whole, when you look at most of what is presented as craft beer, most of it is craft beer. For me, that, that kind of reinforced why it's important for us as small independent brewers to use that term is because, like, Blue Moon is fucking everywhere, you know, and that's a, a creation of the Miller Brewing Company everywhere with this artfully crafted line like they're you know they're all about like craft beer like uh anheuser-busch uh inbev bought goose island brewing blue point uh 10 barrel and now just this last week uh elysian brewing out of seattle and they're all they're touting it as their craft division and this is the largest beverage manufacturer in the world right and so like to me it's like if we give up on the term craft because we think it's a little too vague then that just means that inbev gets to use it and we don't right i'm so glad you guys brought that up because this is a really important thing that purchase last week by Anheuser-Busch got beer people talking incredibly. You know this, of course. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that people who love beer say is that they will never buy that beer again 
or they will never give a dollar to Anheuser-Busch or Miller or whatever because they believe that Anheuser-Busch and Miller put money in t- and lobby, you know, f- state government, federal government that will hold down uh, independent brewers. I believe that this, um, a, a good thing about this is like the analogy between the organic movement and the craft brewing, brewing movement. Both of those have become diluted by big business. And what in the organic movement, what that is leading towards is a growing interest in focus on local because you can't trust the big businesses. So much that is labeled as organic comes from China, and they are the biggest cheaters in yeah. commerce uh, ever. But it's focusing on local, and local is what is good for our communities. Yeah, It's not a question. Like uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev is an unfathomably large company. And they don't make money selling beer. They make money on mergers and acquisitions. Like how they make money is you buy a new company, you fire all of the redundant people, and then that amount of money that you were spending paying them becomes your profit that year, right? Uh, It's the the, the most soulless, useless company. They do nothing for humanity. Which is cute because I heard before they were bought by the international business guy, who Mm. bought Anheuser-Busch? InBev. Oh, InBev did? So I heard before that they were sort of like, a, as far as a big corporation goes, they were kind of homey and sort of inefficient, but whatever. But now InBev bought them, and now they've become really efficient and really soulless. Well, that's why they got bought, is because they were homey, which means that there was a lot of fat to cut. The the year that uh, InBev bought Anheuser-Busch, they gave out a quarter billion dollars in bonuses to their executive staff. Uh quarter billion dollars like just like amounts of money that mean nothing to people like us and, and to clarify they gave a quarter billion dollars in bonuses to InBev executives yes, yes. after uh. after after the acquisition they cut so much fat that 250 million dollars just went to executives just because of what the they horses. got rid of and, and oh, they laid off. They let off thousands and thousands. For, this is a company that had a higher annual profit margin than Procter Gamble Anheuser-Busch did. Anheuser-Busch did. And they laid people off at that profit margin to give money to InBev executives. It's just... They sell about 47% of the beer in the United States market, right? Like one company, 47% of the beer. They don't compete on like, how do we make the best product and how do we sell it for a good price and how do we get in front of the right consumers? Like they compete on, all right, like, you know, like the, the wholesalers who sell our beer and sell smaller breweries beer are like you know a point at which we can deny access to markets like they can't sell more beer than they already do so the only way for them to do better is to deny other people the ability to sell beer like it's not it's not any kind of question one of the things they'll lobby lawmakers on the big companies is that you cannot sell directly to customers they need to go through a distributor and so if you lived in one of those states that had that, Henhouse would not exist. What you're saying, you know, is totally true. They do lobby in a lot of states, like um, Indiana and Minnesota are states where small breweries are really actively lobbying to change the laws to be able to uh, get basically a more ability to sell well, beer well, to people. think about that. You wouldn't be able to sell just to a grocery store or whatever, right? Or to a restaurant. And, and, and you're bringing up the... Uh the alcohol laws that are state by state and um, there's a lot of differences between the states and it's yeah. rather 
it's based on uh, archaic uh, ideologies. So, so it's not just the corporations that dictate that, but that's archaic. No, but l- the lobbying plays a role in terms of lawmaking, and they have a lot of money to funnel into lobbying to perhaps... Mm. Well, I don't know, Tom, you complain to me sometimes that you feel like you don't vote on a national level anymore because you no. feel everything's yeah. so fucked up yeah. that you only want to vote locally. I do. And so I think pe- coming back to people saying they're not going to buy Elysian products anymore, in a capitalist nation, they feel that every dollar they spend is essentially like their way of voting. Absolutely. They don't want to give. They don't want to give their money to a company that's going to be voting against the interests of yeah. companies that they like. And and that's I, I think I think the the people who vote like that I think that's an important like I I honestly I do not spend money on Anheuser Busch products at all. So what you're saying is, think globally, and act locally. Oh. This is a new thought that, I made should, up just now. <laughs> you should trademark that. Oh, someone trademark that. Yeah. And I, I think it kind of ties back to you. You know, um, not to be too corporate and on message that's good that's what you're here for yeah absolutely we we are so crazy lucky to like be in an industry where people think about what what we make that way you know like people think about like you know like oh like i don't want to buy that because it's made by an evil soulless corporation like you know like i don't know anything about how my toilet paper is made yeah i don't know a damn thing what percentage of toothpaste consumers actually think about like how their toothpaste is made and if it's made by a crappy corporation right or if that corporation is owned by another crappier exactly right exactly who's been bought out by who and this is and and colin's right like we we are lucky to be the size company we are in a in an industry like this like this industry is actually amazing and there are some weird like post prohibition laws that have actually that help our size company out a lot which is the fact if you go into a large grocery store and you look at the bread aisle, all that shelf space is purchased by bread manufacturers. Like Wonder Bread buys shelf space. That's like, crazy. Like uh, Nature Made or whoever, mm-hmm. whoever else. Like they buy shelf space and they get that shelf space. They pay annually is for it. Is that to lock out uh, other, other... Absolutely, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, if think about it. If you are a national brand and you're in a national chain of grocery store, like one way to compete is like if you can just buy... Um, 30 feet of shelf space and put all your brands in that shelf space that locks out other brands. Oh, it's owning this. Um, that's illegal to do with alcohol. It's illegal to do in the uh, movie industry. As a matter of fact. Oh really? Yeah. You can't, uh, uh, it was MGM UA used to, uh, own several studios and they would show, or many studios up and down California in Uh particular. And they would show their product first in their movie theaters. And that was, uh, it was ruled illegal. And they had to divest several, many of their theaters oh, back wow. in the 60s over that. Tom oh, Gaffey cool. used yeah. to manage movie theaters. So this, oh, house really? was, this house was an MGM UA house. It was a California theater. And it was part of the disvestiture in uh, 1965, which is why it is the, uh, it was the showcase, became the showcase, then the Phoenix Theater. But it, it, this is a divested theater from that. I was De- looking awesome. for a reason to use the term divestiture. Uh, divestiture. divestiture. You came to the right place. Fantastic. Absolutely. Tom also, Gaffey delivers. Yeah. Man, he does. And it would actually blow your mind if you looked at the bread aisle at a grocery store, the different brands. They're like all owned by they're the same. They're all owned by the same. Like, like bimbos or something. Well, it's, they're like Kraft Foods manufacturers. The, the number of brands in that house is insane. Yeah. And so in beer, it's illegal for Budweiser to go in and just straight up buy shelf space, which is part of absorbing other brands and and known brands like you know what i mean it's, it's part of building a big portfolio so that when a beer buyer goes in and they're buying from a catalog they buy you know most of their options are then in bev brands but it's it's at least illegal for them to go in and just straight up buy the shelf space so for people like us and the same thing goes like uh for henhouse and tap handles it's it's illegal for people to go in and just buy tap handle space so we're able to remain competitive on quality do you think it still happens 
even though it's illegal? Yeah, absolutely. They sure, would, yeah. It was just a big thing in Massachusetts where small brand went on Twitter. Um, it was uh, Pretty Things uh, Ale and Beer Project went on Twitter and said, like, we're really tired of people buying draft lines, and it sucks for us. Cause, it's like, referred to as pay-to-play. And, and a lot of that has to do when, when you become beholden to investors. You have to make decisions that have nothing to do with what you initially founded the company for. And there's a lot of examples of that. A company raises a lot of money, and they just and then their business plan might not pencil out the way it is, and so they need to make choices to uh, keep, the, keep the ball rolling down the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys are small. Mm-hmm. And you hope to probably be bigger and continue doing what you're doing. Do you? No, man, I like 80 hour work weeks. <laughs> <laughs> are there any breweries that you've seen that are sort of cautionary tales? I mean, other than the obvious, like Elysian, where it's like they get to a certain point and then they change. I think for us as a company since day one, it's, I mean, and not to just sound like corporate and on talking point, but we are, we, we are a beer quality company i mean for us the line i mean i feel like the one of the lines in the sand has always just been beer quality and i don't think we're ever gonna have any reason to cross that we've had and we've made decisions uh against some like different kinds of expanding options based on beer quality decisions and from an early point we structured this company to where it's the three of us and uh when you have three people with a voice it, it really makes easy decisions i had a thought about the the concept of um the things about our business that are important to us and we want to maintain on quality and how there's an enamoration of small companies out there and how people just love how small we are and how just small we are and just, you know, I hope you don't grow because small is better and, and really, you know, no, we've written a business plan and we actually desperately need to grow to a certain level because then we get economies of scale, we have the ability to pick and choose our ingredients more and we can um, sustainably grow the company in, in the direction that we can still steer the ship. So um, so please love us when we're still small but bigger than we are now. Yeah, qu- quality assurance costs money. It's a <laughs> comprehensive lab on site. I mean, it's, it's expensive. If you guys want a tap room out there, then they need to get bigger because at this point yeah. there is no tap well, room. if you want to buy exactly. in bottles, they need to get yeah, bigger. Yeah, six packs. Yes. yes. And, like, you want to talk about fan ownership. It's, like, you know, it's amazing how people – project their desires for their, your company right. onto you. Like, you know it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what you should that. do. I have an it's, idea. It's, it's, it's a step beyond that. It's not like, you know what you should do. It's like people are like, you know what, I'm so glad you've decided to do what I think you should do. And you're like, I, like people's like, I, I've had people say that to me, like exactly what Scott was just saying. Like, I'm so glad you guys are like on this whole stay small, stay local thing. And I'm like, oh, that's that's not the plan. Can we, <laughs> that's, that's not even close. Can we we please talk in like two years and, and hopefully in two years it's different. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean uh, if the uh, last two years are any indication, it will be uh, in, in a positive yeah, direction. Yeah. Yeah. Our 20-year-old van is sick, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we finally <laughs> got graphics on our van. So we're fuck, we, look out. We're the next Lagunitas. Oh, yeah. we, okay. we were able to afford graphics on our van. <laughs> the crazy thing about the Lagunitas and like, you know, like this whole like you stay small idea is like, it's really next to impossible to convey like the difference in scale uh, between the breweries in this country, like outside of like the small craft breweries. It's like, you know, we did 1000 barrels of production last year. Straight up G. So it's 31,000 gallons, right? How many kegs is that? 2,000. 2,000. 2,000 kegs last year. So Lagunitas, I don't know what the exact production number is, but it was just shy of a million last year. And you did? Wow. 1,000. 1,000. Okay. Right. You know, right there, you're just like, wow, Lagunitas is huge, right? 
Anheuser-Busch is 96 million barrels yeah. last year. Something like that, yeah. You know, so and, like, and like Lagunitas is tiny, right? Like, they're, they're nothing compared to the national market. And it's really kind of hard to, with how stratified the, the brewing market is, it's really kind of hard to wrap your mind around what the idea of, like, big actually is. Well, I, I don't think it's an argument between big and small, though people frame it that way. Like, I think that you can expand and keep your soul or keep what made you great. It's yeah. just very, very difficult. I think I think Lagunitas has, has done a good job of being able to like job, yeah. to make the local community feel like yeah. they are still their brand, and I think it's partly the not giving a fuck attitude, as it were. Will like the in the Elysium, case, original Elysium owners ever have to work again? Well, that's that's my one about like uh, Elysium is like I think that you can be happy for someone. They, the the owners of Elysium worked twenty years, twenty years to, to make a successful company, and they did. Yeah. They and had was, a production brewery, four brew pubs. Mm-hmm. They're and, killing it. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, like at some point you want the nice car and the big house. And yeah. like, I think it's unreasonable to expect people to work that hard for that long and not even consider the buyout. Like, you know, there are lots of people who work that hard that long and, you know, turn down the buyout in a, heart, uh, in a heartbeat. But like, I think it's unreasonable to expect everybody not to. At the same time, I'll never buy Elysian products again. And I kind of feel like it's one of those things where it's like you got to choose a legacy or a paycheck. And I'm not mad at you for choosing a paycheck, but you don't get to have the legacy now. You know, like we we all stopped loving Elysian and we're all really happy you got fifty million dollars. Is that how much money they got? Uh, so the the going rate because it was a privately held company, we are not uh, privy to we're how much speculating. It was yeah, the going rate for breweries is about a million dollars per thousand barrels of annual output, and they were doing fifty thousand barrels. There's a very significant difference between buying a brewery and building one. You know. You need a bunch of money to do either thing. But, you know, for us, like, we're all dudes who have always built things and always been really interested in being involved in the process. And, like, I I don't know that the idea of, like, just, like, purchasing everything and then it, like, works is appealing to any of us. Like, I think that the idea of, like, all right, well, let's, like, figure out how it works, and, you know, and then let's get our hands dirty, yeah. and let's, like, build it from the ground up. And, you know, like, the, there's no job at Hen House that hasn't been done by one of us, and, like, that'll be true for as long as the company exists. There'll never be a function of this company that one of the three of us has never done. We all want to run a large, successful business and buy, buy ranches out in the country, but, like, we also... So many ranches. Dude, just six or seven. Um, That's all. But, um, well, I mean, for me. Yeah. Um, but, like, the the process of actually, like involving yourself in like the floor level construction is is something else on a personal level and it really resonates with people you know like uh, I think people people give a shit that like Scott made all our tap handles you know and like whenever I'm out at accounts and like people are like oh those are cool tap handles I'm like yeah Scott made those out of 100 year old redwood from a chicken barn uh, that a woman named Mrs. Schwartz sold to us like that level of involvement blows people's mind. They're just like, whoa, you didn't just buy that off the internet? And I'm like, no, dude, like, that's, that's handmade. And it, it, it just shocks people and really, like, kind of, they're like, oh, well, like, I want to know what's going on now. Like, I want to, like, talk about it. I want to be involved with it, you know? Like, and that, that is um, not really worth exchanging for anything. We have clear goals and objections. We know where we're going and uh, we're certainly pedaling down that street. They wrote a plan. My hope is that we would, we would grow as big as people want to drink the beer and we can keep the beer good. 
right? Beer is super perishable. The further it travels, the worse it is. Trying to keep it in California and grow here, you know, and grow deep um, is just more than anything else to me. It's just a quality decision. It's like, well, like if we sell all our beer in the Bay Area, it's probably going to be fresh. You know, I want to like make sure that everybody we can get good beer to gets it. You know. But where you're at right now, you can't do that. But the idea is to keep uh, growing and then hopefully be able to accommodate the people that want to buy your beer. Yeah, absolutely. Someday, someday we'll be able to get super fresh beer down to L.A. and get it to people in good shape so that they can present it well. And you're confident about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's not today and it's not tomorrow. But that's great because maybe two years ago, you would not have been able to say that with confidence. It's much more real today yeah. than it was two years ago. Yeah. Uh, people oftentimes ask us where we're going and do we want to be the next Lagunitas or do we want to be this or that? And really, we want to be a regional brewery that can support the Bay Area and support California and even the, the West Coast. But when you start talking about trucking your beer over the Rockies, like that, you have to truck it over the Rockies and, and all the warehousing and the storage time before it gets to somebody's glass or their shelf is something that you can't control. It's a, it's a variable. Is, did your, is your beer in a parking lot in the back of a truck getting... You know, when it's 100 degrees out. Beer is best fresh. 99 out of 100 beers start getting worse the second they go into a package, right? Uh, They start oxidizing. Delicious hop flavors turn into, like, sherry and cardboard flavors, which is, like, if you think about the combination of, like, chewing on cardboard and drinking cooking sherry. But if you you pay $12.99, you somehow find it delicious. Exactly. Hopefully, this episode will be interesting to look back on in like six months or a year or two years and be like, can you believe that that's how we were doing things back then? <laughs> the, the frightful things of the past. No longer. We are rich. Stacks of Lamborghinis. <laughs> Not just, you guys remember when we had a brewery? <laughs> by, by stacks of Lamborghinis, he means delivery vans where we could stand up in. <laughs> Honestly, like, people really like the beer. And at the end of the day, to use the totally worn out sports yeah, expression. It's 11 o'clock, so it actually is the end of today. <laughs> this is you are you're talking about the end of the day so at the actual end of a day. And at the end of the day means something to so many, so many <laughs> yeah, day fans out there that we use it, even though we find it obnoxious. Exactly. Sometimes it just sounds like it's just like end, end of, of the day. Did you have an end of the day? End, end, of, the day? end, end of, the day. of the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you want to use that term, go feel free. If people really like the beer, and that's kind of the only thing that matters. You know, like it's up to us to figure out how to make make everything happen but like the the part that is important is that people like the beer they're excited about the beer and they want to support us like we, we're doing everything we can to return that favor yeah tom gaffey you are always the man who wraps us up you've grown up with this man you've watched this brewery grow oh, yeah. what do you have to say do you have any good closing thoughts for uh, us on the hen house experience the, the brand the dynasty uh, pick your words wisely no, you know what? The one thing that's been really, quite frankly, that's been touching me the most tonight is I look at Scott, I see his brother Charles in his jowls and his face, and it's been charming the hell out of me tonight. It doesn't get any more local than that. Um, well, who, who these is that? guys? Are you grew up with his bro- his brother came to the Phoenix oh, and all yeah. that. Charles, yeah, Charles is a good was a good friend and and always remembered down here. And actually, we lost Charles a, a few years back. And he is greatly missed, and I was just looking over at that side of the table and realized, oh, my God, I have Charles's face back on this stage, and it's really kind of important to me. This has been a beautiful thing. This is what I'm really taking away the most tonight. It's been really cool. So we get a moment of that. Big shout-out to uh, Charles Cushway. 
Yes, thanks, Tom. Yeah, it's the truth. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for coming tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your beer, and we're excited to see where it all goes. So uh, keep it up. Yeah, keep it up. Thank you. We will. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.